0: Go. I hear myself, and kind of some thunder back there too, which is scary. I hope I woke you up with a couple of feedbacks uh, from that microphone, just keeping you on your toes, making the coffee work a little bit faster. Today we're oh hi Ken, still up there. Today we're finishing off our summer series in Second Samuel. Uh, Brad was supposed to preach this morning, but as many of you may have heard uh, Meg's grandfather passed away last weekend, and so Brad and Meg and the family are out on the island there uh, for his memorial service. So I know they appreciate and are grateful for all your prayers that you've sent towards for their family these past month and a bit, and we continue to pray for them this morning. And as we go into Second Samuel, I first want to take a moment to acknowledge the miracle that is happening today and that is I am preaching and we have slides so I think that deserves a round of applause first of all this is amazing third time's the charm and I have slides I'm gonna stay away from that because it doesn't like me standing over there it's good work Matthew I'm grateful that you have gotten my slides working This morning. Well, last week I didn't have slides preaching because we were facing the results of a powerful windstorm going through our city that ripped through, knocked down power lines, and caused us to have a lovely, actually, morning service out in the picnic tables where I yelled at you for a little bit uh, about Absalom and his. Rebelling. And amongst that chaos where we gathered together and asked each other the very important question, do you have power at your house? And can I come over and have some hot food or charge my phones? And amongst that chaos of losing our much relied upon electricity, we looked at the chaos of David's world as his son Absalom rebelled against him. And no, this wasn't. Absalom getting a tattoo or a piercing that his father didn't approve of. It was a full-blown rebellion, kicking his father David off the throne so that he could sit in his place and then going on to try to kill his father. But the vanity and the self-centeredness of Absalom caused him to be influenced to face David's army head-on with he himself leading the army out. And the result of this was Absalom hanging like a pinata from a tree quite humiliated uh, And then caused him to die as he was fleeing from battle And then so we see in the next chapter David returns to Jerusalem mourning and grieving his son And then the next few chapters starts describing his battle with the Philistines And the feats of his mighty men And then we now come where we are finishing off 2 Samuel today in the last chapter, chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to 2 Samuel 24 or open it on your Bible apps or look at the lovely slides that are working. All right. And we see here that David is going to sin against God once more. And we're starting in verse 1 because that's a good place to start. Once again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he caused David to harm them by taking a census. Go and count the people of Israel and Judah, the Lord told him. So the king said to Joab and the commanders of the army, take a census of all the tribes of Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, so I may know how many people there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God let you live to see a hundred times as many people as there are now. But why, my lord, the king, do you want to do this? But the king insisted that they take the census. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out to count the people of Israel. We see right away that God is angry with Israel. We don't know why he's angry because it doesn't specifically say why. But we can figure it out by looking at what's going to happen in the rest of this chapter. And we see that God tells David to go and count the people of Israel and Judah. And so the question that arises here is, did God tell David to sin so that he could punish David? Because that doesn't seem like a very fair thing to do. Well, we have to say that God doesn't tempt people to do anything. So we couldn't call him a God of justice, a just God, if he says, go do this, oh, you did that, that's bad, I'm going to punish you. That wouldn't be very fair. We don't see a fair father tell his child, go knock that vase off the table, and when the child goes and knocks it off and it breaks, punishes the child for doing what he told them to do. That's not very fair. What's happening here is Scripture often describes God as doing something that he merely just allows to happen. In fact, in Chronicles telling of the story, in 1 Chronicles 21, it says that Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel. God is merely removing his presence and his hand from David so that Satan can come in and tempt him. It's much like in the book of Job, where God and Job are having this conversation. No, God and Satan are having this conversation. Picked up on that little mistake there. (laughs) God and Satan are having this conversation and God's just bragging about Job. Have you seen my servant Job, how righteous and how amazing Job is? And Satan tells him, well, if you removed your hand of protection and let me take a shot at him, he's going to curse you to your face. It's like that situation. God removed his hand from Job so that Satan could come and tempt him. God is removing his hand from David so that Satan can come and tempt him to take a census. It's still David's choice to do the census. He could hear that temptation from Satan and say, no, I'm not going to do that, or say yes, which he does. And so God isn't forcing him to do something and then punishing him for doing that thing. And Joab argues with David about this, but David's word goes, and so Joab and the commanders go off and start counting the people. And Joab takes quite a journey. He starts by going over the Jordan River to that little city of Here's where the pronunciation is going to be very fun. And from there, he travels up north to Jazer. And he hangs out in there for a little bit. And after that, he's going to travel up to Gilead. Oh, there we go. we got And then the next one, he goes to Gilead, follow the blue line. And then he's going to travel way up north to Dan before hitting the coast on Sidon, down to Tyre, and then making the long trek all the way down to Beersheba and then it goes back to Jerusalem now that's the path that it describes that's all the cities they list in there but that's not all the cities in Israel he's got to count all of Israel in fact I took out a bunch of the cities I had to erase them so it wouldn't be so confusing on this map and so as we go to the next slide that is a bunch of the cities that I erased and that's not even, again, all the cities in Israel because they have people all over the place. And so Joab's path, since he has to count everyone, looks a little bit more like this next slide and where he's just going all over the map. And hence, it takes him nine months. And that's probably like, there's even cities in there that he's not hitting so in that map. So he's taking a long time going to count all these people. But eventually he finally comes back to Jerusalem and tells David the amount of people there are who can draw the sword, the amount of soldiers that are in Israel. So we're going to take our own little census here and we're going to see how many soldiers Jericho would contribute to the cause of David. So I'll get everyone to stand up here, do a little stretch. I know you probably haven't been sitting that long since we just had Coffee Connection. But we're going to start eliminating some people who can't be in the army. So if you're in David's army of Israel, one of the first rules is you can't be a woman. So if you are a female, you can sit down. I'm sorry. You are not allowed to fight in David's army. The next one is the age limit. So scripture says that you have to be 20 years old at least to be able to fight in the army. So if you are under 20 you can take a seat. You are not going to fight in this battle. And then on the other side, Scripture doesn't exactly lay out how old uh, how much, how old is too old to be in the army. Um, scholars say a couple different things. Some say 40 just because of the life expectancy of the time. Some say 60. So we're going to go with 60. If you are over 60, you can sit down because you are not going to be in the army so so far this is the people we are sending out to fight the war we have what 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 12 13 14 15 16 17 18 19 20 21 22 23 24 25 strong soldiers to fight in the army so once you got to the battle lines they would ask you four questions to see who we're gonna send home from the battle lines. so we have 25 Possible soldiers, but if we were going to go into a battle today, how many soldiers would we have? Well, the first question They ask is if you have just built a home and not yet dedicated it you can go home So if you moved into a new house in the last year you can sit down Because you haven't dedicated your home and so you don't have to go to war. I see a couple people sat down there extensions, no brand new house no extensions. Second question. If you've planted a vineyard and have not yet enjoyed its fruit, you can go home. So it took about four years. How I many wineries? Four years until they could enjoy the first fruits. But we'll have to, again, adjust it because I don't think. Do we have any vineyard owners even in here? No, I didn't think so. Not from the Okanagan like I am. Where there's lots of vineyards. Uh, so we're going to say if you planted a garden for the first time this year, you can sit down. Ah, we got one. All right. Enjoy those first fruits. Third one, which I don't think is going to eliminate anyone, but if you have been betrothed to a wife but not yet married, you can go home. So if you're engaged, you can sit down, but I don't think we have anyone who is engaged. We don't quite have that age demographic. And the fourth one, if you have fear in your heart, then go home. But we're not going to ask that. (laughs) because we don't want to see the people who don't really trust God um, so we'll, we'll save you that embarrassment so we got what 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 20 people going into battle you can sit down our fine and mighty soldiers good job alright so 25 of you would go to the lines and 5 of you would be sent home That is what our army. Well, David has a considerably larger army than we would have. He has 800,000 warriors in Israel and 500,000 in his own tribe of Judah, a soldier force of at least a million strong. And then David is convicted of his sin. But why is counting the people considered a sin? God had asked Moses to do a couple of censuses since I, whatever the plural of census is. And so Moses did it, and that wasn't considered a sin. Well, the difference here is God didn't outright command it. Again, he's just letting Satan tempt David to do this. And as we see in Joab's report, David is counting the people who can draw the sword. He's counting the size of his army. He is trusting more in the power and might of this million-strong army than he is in the God of the universe. And this is where we see why God is angry with Israel as a whole. God is using David's sin to represent Israel's sin. Israel is trusting more in their own strength than they are trusting in the God who brought them out of Egypt. He's using David, his representative, to the people to show the people their sin. Trusting in themselves rather than in God. And David realizes he has sinned. And we see his reaction next in verse 10 of this chapter. But after he had taken the census, David's conscience began to bother him. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly by taking this census. Please forgive my guilt, Lord, for doing this foolish thing. Despite Joab telling David that taking a census was a bad idea. And this is Joab who's telling him it's a bad idea. Joab who killed the General Abner even though David said, don't kill Abner. Joab, who killed David's son, Absalom, even though David said, don't kill Absalom. So not usually the greatest judge of what's right and wrong, but even he knows that taking the census is a bad idea, and God doesn't want that. But David doesn't listen, does it anyway, and now he finally realizes he's done something wrong. And so he goes before God, and he seeks forgiveness and repents. But God isn't quite done teaching the lesson. David may have learned his lesson, but Israel still needs to learn theirs. So God continues teaching. God, through his prophet, Gad, comes and basically says to David, you know what? You want control? Fine. You can have control. Choose your own adventure. Choose your punishment that faces your nation because of your sin. What's it going to be? Curtain number one. Curtain number two or curtain number three. So let's see what's behind the curtains. First up, we have curtain number one. Let's get a drum roll here. There we go, Here we go. What's behind curtain number one? Famine. Empty pizza box, because I'm sure that's what a lot of you ate last weekend with no power. Three years of famine, little to no food going into the, in the nation for three years. This would mean that Israel would have to rely on the surrounding nations to buy food for them or trade with them. If those nations would even sell to Israel. And it would also mean that David and his family are fairly safe. They're the kings. They've got all the riches in the world. They can afford to buy food from far off lands. They're pretty safe from this um, famine. And so we go to curtain number two through famine. Curtain number two, drum roll again. There we go. And behind curtain number two is war. Three months of war. Three months from fleeing from your enemy. In this option, Israel again is at the mercy of the nations surrounding them who can pillage and kill to their heart's content. This would limit the people who die down to mostly soldiers. And again, David would be pretty safe because he has the soldiers and the bodyguards to protect him. And as we saw last weekend, hundreds and thousands of soldiers were willing to lay down their lives for David. And now he's got an army of a million strong to protect him. So he is, again, fairly safe from this one. And finally, we have curtain number three. Last drum roll here. And behind curtain number three is Plague. Three days of plague. The one that David picks, curtain number three. Here they are at the mercy of God. It is administered solely through God. They don't have to worry about any people. It's God picking who's going to have the plague. Secondly, it's the shortest period of time. It's only three days rather than three months or three years. And lastly, nobody is safe from this one. Not even David or his family. Anyone could catch the plague. And David has shown that he's truly repented of his sin by selecting curtain number three, three days of plague. David sees this as punishment for his own sins of counting the people. And so he knows it's unjust if he doesn't face the punishment. And so he chooses the one that can affect him and his family, the plague. And it also shows his full repentance by picking that. And he picks this plague by saying, Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into human hands. He is no longer trusting in his own strength, but in the mercy of God. His sin was not trusting God. He repents of that and now fully trusts God. He could use his own strength and riches to survive the famine or the war with his million soldiers, but the plague He's trusting in God to be merciful and let him survive this disease. That is repentance. Not saying sorry and then only to do the same thing again later. But actively rejecting the sin that you've done and not going back. Not saying sorry I didn't trust you God. And then relying on your own strength to face the consequences of your sin. But saying, I'm sorry, God, I didn't trust you. I put my life into your hands. If you kill me with plague, then you kill me with plague. If I survive, then I survive. I trust you fully. David's made his choice, and the punishment begins in verse 15 to 16. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel that morning, and it lasted for three days. A total of 70,000 people died throughout the nation, from Dan in the north To Beersheba in the south. But as the angel was preparing to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented and said to the death angel, Stop, that is enough. At that moment, the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. We say David put his faith in the right place. Yes, 70,000 people died because of the sins of Israel. But Jerusalem, who deserved to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins, God spares and is merciful. He relents. David sees the angel delivering the punishment, and he cries out on behalf of his nation, thinking again that this is only for his own sins. And he says, I am the one who sinned and done wrong. But these people are as innocent as sheep. What have they done wrong? Let your anger fall against me and my family. David again is thinking only that this is his punishment for the sin, his sins pleads for his people, and asks God to stop the punishment and to punish him for what he's done. But David has already repented, and God has already forgave him. David, realizing he sinned, asked for forgiveness and then trusted fully in God, and so God forgave him and delivered him from that punishment of plague that he deserved. And God responds to David's plea for the people and tells him, build an altar on this threshing floor where this angel didn't destroy Israel and put your sacrifices on them. And so this threshing floor belongs to this guy named Aruna. And Aruna sees David and his men coming. He's like, oh, here comes the king and his posse. I wonder what he wants. And so he goes out, bows down before him, and they have this conversation. Why have you come, my lord, the king? Aruna asked David. David replied, I have come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop the plague. Take it, my lord, the king, and use it as you wish, Arunah said to David. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and you can use the threshing boards and yoke o- ox yokes for wood to build the fire on the altar. I will give it all to you, your majesty, and may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. But the king replied to Arunah, No, I insist on buying it, for I will not present burnt offerings to my Lord that cost me nothing. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. David is again giving the opportunity to escape punishment for his sin. First, he's offered the three choices of punishment, two that he's safe from, one that he's not safe from, and he picks the one that he's not safe from, thinking he's going to get punished. But he doesn't get the plague and then so he goes to sacrifice and he's offered the sacrifice uh, things for free that he can just do. Which doesn't really work because it's a sacrifice. You have to sacrifice something. And if he's just taking Aruna's oxen and, and burning them, he's not. hes Aruna's sacrificing. David's not sacrificing. But he pays full price for it. You say, I'm not, it's not going to cost me anything, this sin or this sacrifice. I'm going to pay you for it. With 50 pieces of silver, which with silver's plunging prices is only about 260 bucks today. But like two years ago, was like $500. So it was probably pretty costly back then. And so he builds this offer, uh, altar and offers these burnt offerings for the atonement of sin. Perhaps thinking that he's atoning his own sin, but again, he's already been forgiven. He's actually sacrificing for the atonement, the forgiveness of Israel's sins. And he also offers a peace offering, a worship offering to God. And with those offerings, the plague stops and Israel's sins are forgiven. Israel's sin that raised the anger of God was trusting in their own strength rather than God's. David's sin represented that counting his might and his power of his million strong army rather than trusting in the might and the power of God the God who created the universe the God who's represented by a pillar of fire and David realizing his sin puts himself in the full mercy of God completely trusts in God no matter if God's going to afflict him or let him survive He trusts his fate in God's hands. Trust in God and his mercy. We are given a choice. Continue in sin or lay down our lives for the God who laid down his life for us. God's grace extends both to Christians and non-Christians, but one of those groups gets grace eternal. God's grace to the non-believer the non-Christian, is letting them live in the sin that they have chosen. Let them live in what they have decided to worship and decided to follow. He doesn't force himself upon those who choose sin over them, but he lets them live in that sin. It says in Romans 1:23 to 23-25, And instead of worshipping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshipped idols made to look like mere people, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things that God created instead of the creator himself. They chose sin over God and so God lets them live in that choice. He removes his hand as he did with David and lets them live as they have chosen. Israel decided to trust in their own strength and so God delivers them into that. But he is a God of justice and he only allows that sin for so long. He allows Israel to live in that sin of trusting in their own strength but eventually the punishment comes. His anger arises, he removes his grace and he delivers them into the consequences of that sin, 70,000 people Dying in three days. One day he will judge. And sin stops there. The consequences of what is chosen comes to fruition. For those who have chosen to follow God have repented of their sins. And have accepted that God came and died for them. The consequences are reward. They have repented and accepted God. And they are rewarded with eternal life with their beloved creator but those who have chosen to follow sin follow the creation rather than god himself are delivered into the consequences of their choice the full punishment for sin is death the rejection of the god who died for them means that their sin is unrepented and god rejects them and they face the punishment So where do you stand? Is there sin that has been unrepented of? Are you choosing to trust in your power over the power of the creator of the universe? There's an essayist, which sounds like a super fun job. And a great thing to explain when you're like, oh yeah, an essayist, this is going to be boring. But he says something really interesting. His name is Ralph Emerson, and he's from the 19th century. And he says, a person will worship something, have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves, great word, us to be careful what we worship. For what we we are worshiping, we are becoming. Are you worshiping God, becoming more like Christ, or worshiping fallen creation, becoming more fallen? We worship something. That is not an option to worship or not to worship. It's just what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping God? Are you worshiping money? Are you worshiping sex? Are you worshiping success? Your job? Family? You're worshiping something. And you get delivered fully into the consequences of what you're worshiping. But there's good news to all this. And the good news is literally the gospel, because that translates to good news. That we can trust in God's all-sufficient mercy like David trusted in God's mercy during punishment. The punishment for sin is death, and by choosing to follow sin, we choose death. But luckily, the other choice is choosing to trust God, to follow Christ. Laying down the life of sin that you have lived, dying to it, and being raised in Christ. For in Christ is our salvation. He is our burnt offering that stops the plague. God, in His great mercy, came as mere man and died on the cross so that sin would no longer have a hold on us. He died on the cross took our sin to the grave and left it there as he rose again three days later so we could have eternal life that is the good news do you trust in your own efforts efforts that will never lead to righteousness but only lead to death or do you trust in the mercy of god the god who came and died so that if you choose to follow him you have life he lived the righteous life that our own efforts could never live and died even though he didn't deserve it so that we don't have to. It's a choice. What are you going to choose? Which path are you going to take? Choose your own adventure. What are you worshiping? What are you following? What are you becoming? We're going to take this time now as the worship team is going to come up and to reflect on those things. What Am I worshiping in my life? What sins are there that's blocking me from fully worshiping God? Have you accepted Christ and His sacrifice for you? We're gonna have response teams on the side. Katie will be on one side, and I'll be on the other, and we're here to pray for you, praying through any of the struggles you're facing, the sins perhaps that are unrepented of. So take this time during our worship to, to praise our merciful God who died for us. Reflect on your life. What are you worshiping? And feel free to come and visit either one of us on the side so we can pray for you here.